Okay, let's begin by looking at this uh, really long section of scripture we're going to look at this morning. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I thank you, Father, that you have issued to each one of us who call Jesus our Savior and serve him an upward call. Uh, a call that's not dependent upon situations around us, but dependent upon the one who calls. And not only are you calling us, but you're also empowering us to respond. And I thank you, Father, for that dynamic that we're going to look at this morning. I ask, Father, that you'd help us to understand and apply what we see in your word this morning to our lives and to those people we have come in contact with. Just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we often think that we live in a unique period of history. I mean, every generation thinks that. And while it's true that actually events that we go through might be different than anything we've ever seen before, the underlying principles are not new. There's still nothing new under the sun, as Solomon taught us years ago. So I want us to try to enter into what was happening in Philippi using updated terminology. So you're going to have to use your sanctified imagination this morning. I want you to visualize yourself in Philippi. I want you to visualize yourself, visualize this young couple in the Roman colony about 60 AD. We're going to call them Mr. and Mrs. Musaka, because I like Greek food. Um, they live in a small house on Bridge Street. They're new Christians, but they're very zealous to get to know God better and to find out anything they can from anyone they can about how to do that. Now, Mr. Musaka has heard there's a visitor in town. Uh, from Thessalonica, who's nearby, and he's teaching how the, a Christian can grow closer to Jesus. So he attends the meeting, it's in the house down the street, and the visitor is teaching that if you want to truly love Christ, then you must renounce your Gentileness and embrace the new movement, Jewish Lives Matter. Because after all, Gentiles have oppressed Jews throughout history, and the only way that a Gentile can truly experience salvation is by giving their life to Mashiach, Jesus, and then adopting a devout Jewish lifestyle, kind of as penance. And this is what the teacher told them. You can experience a life in the here and now that leads to perfection on earth and a seamless transition to heaven. All that's required is a personal dedication to following Jesus by adding the rituals and the feast days that Jesus himself followed, to walk in his steps, to do what Jesus did. If you add the right actions to your faith in Jesus, you can attain perfection before God in this life. And for a few Cisterces, you can buy this attractive papyrus workbook to track your progress. <laughs> so Mr. Musaka returns home after the meeting, and as he's sitting around the table with his wife, maybe eating some dried figs, he tells her, you know, the Christian life seems to be absolutely hopeless. I understand the zeal. I understand what this fellow's teaching but I can't possibly see how it can be done. 
There's no way I can become perfect like that. Besides, I never oppressed any Jews myself. And of course, his wife agrees with this self-assessment, but they both end up being kind of discouraged and dispirited. So it just so happens the very next Sunday they're in church at Philippi, and this letter that we're looking at to the Philippians uh, is being read. And of course, the congregation is excited to hear from their spiritual father, so everyone is straining to hear the contents and to understand it. And, and so as it proceeds, which it would have done in one sitting, they would have read the whole letter from beginning to end, with no verses, they get this, what we call Philippians 3.10, which was read, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Mr. Masak kind of nudges his wife and says, here we go, it's the same thing I heard down the street. And Mr. Masaka says, shh, I'm trying to listen. And then he hears verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Well, he's shocked. The Apostle Paul wants to know Christ perfectly, but he says he's not perfect despite his impeccable Jewish CV. Mr. Musaka immediately understands this is really good news. I mean, if Paul's not perfect, then I don't know what this expert down the street is talking about, and I don't plan to ever hear him again. Because if anybody who is going to be perfect, after all, it would be somebody who had a background like Paul's. Here he is, a zealous persecuting the church, a Hebrew of the Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, a zealous Pharisee, blameless in relationship to legal righteousness. And the same guy who had that perfect life as a Jew sheds his past and says, I've not already obtained all this. I'm not already perfect. Well, as Marty showed us last week in verses 7 to 11, Paul tells us how the things he formerly viewed as assets, he now views as liabilities. All because of Christ. And now those things that he viewed as liabilities, now he recognizes as assets. Because Paul now considers it a privilege to enter into the sufferings of Christ even to the point of identifying with Christ to the point of being put to death for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to do that. So our text this morning picks up where Paul left off in those sections at verse 11. And in general terms, these verses explain Paul's perspective on the past, the present, and the future. He's saying the Christian doesn't live in the past, but in the present, always with an eye to the future. So Paul's teaching here, I think, can be summarized in three slogans. I tried to make, keep it simple for me. We're not there yet, but we're pressing on, and we rely on God's grace. So the first slogan that he uses, they probably didn't have bumper stickers, but which is, we're not there yet. Verses 12 and the first part of verse 13. We see here that Paul indicates there's a need for a holy discontentment, a dissatisfaction. Because in, in chapter 4, he's going to tell us how he found contentment. But in order to get to that contentment, we have to go through this process of discontentment. Jesus shows us this pattern in his life all the time. Without the cross, there's no resurrection. Without suffering, there's no glorification. So a cross-shaped life is how we walk in a manner that reflects our new life in Christ. And as Christians, we often feel like we're the rope in a tug-of-war between God and everything that we used to like. I mean, we're people of the earth by birth, while at the same time, we're people of heaven. 
So we're people of two kingdoms who at this point get to live in one of those kingdoms. We're citizens of heaven, as we're going to see in verse 20 in this chapter. We are citizens of heaven, and we have a responsibility as good ambassadors to tell the realm where we presently live what the other realm is like. We're citizens of heaven while we live on earth so that we can bring a touch of heaven really to wherever we go. Which is a joyous arrangement when you think about it. But we find it difficult because the world in which we live operates totally different than heaven. And if we're not careful, we become so involved in this world's cares and concerns that we're robbed of our enjoyment of heaven. If also knows the tension that we live in, and he intends to show us, using his life as an example, how to walk worthy of the gospel. He starts out by saying, not that I've already obtained this, or that I'm already perfect. Okay. But I press on to make it my own. What's he trying to obtain? What's the this and what's the it referring to? What's the antecedent? Is it to attain to the resurrection of the dead? That's how he ended verse 11. No, because Paul already knew that he's going to experience resurrection. Either upon his death or when Jesus comes back, which he hoped came first. And verse 10 tells us what drove the apostle, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul was driven to know as much of Christ as he could this side of glory. I don't know if you're familiar with a man named A.W. Tozer. If not, you should be. Uh, he has a little book called The Pursuit of God. And he was a pastor back in the 1940s and 50s. But he has a, a chapter in this book, The Pursuit of God, that's called Following Hard After God. Now, he wrote this book in 1948, but it's still relevant today. So after, in this, after this book and showing how Moses and David and Paul and all the great hymn writers were always thirsting after more of God, he writes this. How tragic that we in this dark day, huh, he thinks 1948 was dark, huh? how tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ. And we're not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We've been snared in the coils of a spurious logic that insists that if we have found him, we need, we need no more seek him. Which has been set for us, he says, as the last word in orthodoxy. The experiential heart theology of a grand army of fragrant saints is rejected in favor of a smug interpretation of scripture that would certainly have sounded stranger to, strange to an Augustine, a Rutherford, or a Brainerd. So he rejects the false logic that says, if you found God in Christ, that's all you need to do. You don't need to seek him anymore. That would be a, that'd be a matter of works, wouldn't it? And he concludes by saying, to have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. I like that. That's where I want to be. I want to be one of the, the children of the burning heart. So our dissatisfaction with our lives before we met Christ is intended to cause us to pursue a deeper relationship with our God. We go hard after Christ because he's going hard after us. And indeed, by faith, has made us his own. Look at verse 12 again. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. 
because Christ has made me his own. So this verse, I think, explodes the logic that because Christ, if Christ has found us, we don't have to seek him anymore. That we can rest on what Christ has done. We can look back on maybe some experience in our lives while we sit passively and wait for the, for the second coming or for death. Now Paul throws that out with all the rest of the garbage from his previous life. He says, I press on in order to gain Christ because Christ has already gained me. So his conversion was not a cage to protect him from conflict with the world, but his conversion was a catapult into the enemy's camp as he pursued holiness. He's not looking for protection. He wants to be sent forth. So the irresistible grace of God's of Christ overcoming Paul's rebellion and saving him from sin did not make Paul passive. Well, you think it would. It ended up making him powerful and active. Well, back in chapter 2, we saw that we were to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because God's at work within you. To go hard after Christ because, he says, Christ is at work in you. In Hebrews 12, we say, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive. The Lord is working in you what is pleasing in his sight. So we strive while he's working. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Suppose that there's a young man engaged to a young woman, but he hasn't seen her for several months because she's teaching English as a second language in China. Finally, he receives word that she's returning, and her plane will arrive in Seattle. I mean, he could meet her in Yakima, when she arrives there on the bus. But you and I know that he won't. He'll go to the airport to meet her. And when she gets off her plane and clears customs, he's immediately going to rush forward so that he can be with her as much as he possibly can, that much sooner. Now that's the way that God intends that we should live as we serve our Savior. We're to be pressing toward our Savior as he draws nearer to us. Now, if you're familiar with Rudyard Kipling, you ever heard of the push me, pull you? Ah, kind of the same idea. I date myself again here. Anyway, work out your salvation, he says, because God is at work in you. Your work is his work for his glory when you depend on him for everything. It sounds like an oxymoron, but you go hard after Christ because Christ is in you, moving you to go hard after him. So Paul moves in from being dissatisfied with anything in life that detracts from pursuing Christ to his analogy of a foot race, namely that we are pressing on. We're not to be satisfied with being where we are. We want to be more like Christ. So if we're going to press on toward the goal before us, then we can't keep looking behind. That's why Paul tells us that we must be forgetting the things behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. But what are those things that are behind us that we're supposed to forget? Well, I think there's probably two categories that fits in, like uh, things from our non-Christian past, but also things from our past as believers. So let's take a look about, first of all, the things of our pre-Christian past. And when Paul came to faith in Jesus Christ, he realized that all the things in which he had boasted, he says, were really dung. He also realized that in persecuting the saints, he'd been opposing his Lord. So Paul would not want to wish to cling to the past in terms of these accomplishments. 
He rejoiced in the fact that when he came to faith in Christ, he became a new creation. And the guilt of the past had been washed away by the blood of Christ. His sins were separated as far as the east is from the west. They were thrown into the depths of the sea to remember no more. So there's no profit in agonizing over his past. Paul trusted that God would use even his wicked deeds against the saints for their good and ultimately for God's glory. How about the things from our Christian past? I mean, if we're to strain forward and concentrate on what lies ahead, we can't be obsessed with anything in our past, even our past as believers. Here's maybe some of the things that fit in this category that we should forget. Forget the sins and failures of the past. Paul's not giving us an excuse here for failing to deal with matters that require some kind of action on our part. I mean, debts have to be paid, confession has to be made, and reconciliation at least sought. Lessons need to be learned and changes made. But once we've dealt with those issues, our past failures, we leave them and we move on. Having dealt with the past, we don't dwell in the past. Hebrews 12.1 puts it this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You don't run a race wearing a long robe. We must forgive those who sinned against us and put those offenses behind us. Bitterness is that lingering hostility that results when sins are not forgiven and forgotten. Further on in Hebrews 12, it says, Seeing that, see to it, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. God's grace often comes disguised in very misleading ways, often in disagreements with loved ones or with brothers and sisters. They just look like problems. But really, they're opportunities for God's grace to shine through. But if they're not dealt with, they take root in bitterness and resentment, dragging us down and tripping us up from really pursuing all that Christ has for us. So, so as we're pursuing a deeper relationship with Christ, our eyes are going to be opened to see how God intends to use interpersonal issues for his glory. Because he wants us to put his grace, which is a power, to work. We should also forget our apparent successes in the past. I mean, it'd be really easy to rest on our laurels, if we have any, and dwell upon past successes. But we can't look backward if we're going to press on forward. We don't win races by looking backward, by focusing on the finish line. Well, the Olympics, the 2020 Olympics in 2021, ended a week ago. Although many hardly noticed they were on. I mean, it's hard to cheer for athletes sometimes if they hate your country, but even if they are in the minority. That, plus the insufferable push to uh, emphasize sexual aberrations, had turned many of us off from even watching it at all. But there were some really interesting stories, some great stories that illustrate what it means to strain forward for a prize. This is the one that intrigued me. The 400-meter sprinter, Allison Felix. Now, in, she ran, she got a bronze medal in the 400-meter race, and she ran with the U.S. team in the 4x400-meter relay, and they won a gold medal. She earned the distinction at that point of becoming the most decorated U.S. track star in history, with 11 medals over five Olympics, even more than Carl Lewis. However, she almost didn't live to see this one. 
She'd already won six gold medals and three silvers before becoming pregnant in 2018. So faced with a choice between her career and a child, she endured a very challenging pregnancy that nearly took her life and that of her unborn baby. As a matter of fact, the baby had to be delivered by emergency C-section after 32 weeks. Well, she lost 70% of her endorsement pay with Nike after becoming pregnant. The sports brand wanted her to get an abortion to preserve her career. Instead, she chose life. And the stress of juggling motherhood and being an Olympic sprinter, she chose that over an abortion. So she strained forward to reach the prize and a chance to glorify Christ, her Savior, in the process, which she did as she explained how God had given her the strength to do this. So we always, we tend to anyway, applaud athletes who overcome pain and suffering to obtain a prize. Which is why we need to support one another, one of the purposes for the church, as we overcome hurdles, as we race in the real race, for the real prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's an eternal prize. So the things we remember are those things that will cause us to set our eyes on Jesus and that upward call. Because Paul pursues what he calls this upward call. So apparently our race is not finished until we've either died or have been caught up with our brothers and sisters to meet Jesus in the air. And no one's permitted to slack off until the finish line, until their race is won. <laughs> you wonder, one of the is that some people who profess to be Christians then keep looking back to their salvation or looking back to some experience in their life of God's grace years earlier, but who've kind of been on vacation ever since. Because over and over in this epistle, Paul has his eyes on the finish line, which is still ahead and toward which he says we all need to joyfully strive. Well, it's an upward call because it originates with God from where God reigns supreme. And it's upward because that's the direction that we Christians need. That's the way we're heading. And it's a call that never gets rescinded. We need an upward call because it counteracts the downward drag of the world in which we live now. So as Christians, we have substituted the downward drag for the upward call. And so we're heading in the opposite direction of those who have not made Christ their king, which accounts for being feeling like you're roping a tug-of-war. So those who are truly mature, Paul writes, will concur with what he says. In other words, they'll agree that the asking Jesus into your life, the beginning of the salvation process, is just the beginning. It's just like being in the starting blocks. The goal is not going to be reached until our death or some other way that God calls us upward. We keep pressing to the, towards the goal. And to those who think otherwise, he says, God will correct you. So when we become Christians, there is real change. You know that. Our desires are realigned so we want to obey Jesus more and more consistently. Because the, you know, the ultimate consummation of our redemption is not going to occur until Jesus returns with the new heavens and the new earth, we still have to deal with the effects of the fall which it tells us, and we all know this, that the Christian life is not for the faint of heart. It requires real effort. It requires real battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. At times we'll be exhilarated, at other times we're just going to become totally discouraged. But Paul is telling us, whatever your situation might be in the present, he says, don't give up. 
The final victory over Satan was won by Jesus at the cross. And that's already decided the war. So victory is ours already, though it has to slowly work itself out in our own lives and also in the rest of creation, which, as we all know, is groaning to be re- for the sons of God to be revealed. So today's scripture tells us to forget what's behind and to press on toward the goal. And Paul knew that his reward was guaranteed by Christ. He also knew he wouldn't receive it unless he pressed on, pressed forward, working out his salvation with fear and trembling, just as Christ at the same time was working in him, which is the reality of spiritual growth. Our final victory is guaranteed by Christ, but we all know that it's ours if we press away from sin and toward Jesus. Which brings us to our third and final slogan, which is that we rely on God's grace. So a Christian needs to be dissatisfied with his or her former life, so dissatisfied that they put it in the background as we move forward in Christ to magnify him. So we're taken hold of by Christ, and as we move forward, we need direction. So that direction is grounded in the call and the keeping power of Christ. God provides that in his upward call to each of us, to the prize of eternal life in the presence of Christ himself. But as we move forward, we also need discipline. One of the marks of maturity is in learning to look forward rather than constantly looking back. And we see this in a running contest. We saw it in the Olympics. Runners always look forward. If they don't, they slow down or they stumble. Now this word mature that's there in verse 15 is also translated perfect different places in Scripture. Well, how does Paul use it here? Well, if there's a parallel passage that might help us understand this. It's in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So in this case, the term mature here, or some translations have it perfect, it refers to a Christian's mindset, or actually like a life direction. A Christian who has moved beyond functioning as a child to functioning more as an adult. It refers to how we live our lives as we learn to live as joyful, obedient children of God. And it's the same mindset that Paul wrote about at the very beginning of chapter 2 here. In Philippians, have this mind, once again, this mind, this mindset, this life direction among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the mature mindset that Paul's referring to, what he's writing about about putting the needs and interests of others ahead of your own. So what exactly is this upward call of God that's that's Paul's goal and also his prize? To what did God call him in Christ? Well, he spelled that out in in verses 10 and 11. His goal and his prize was to know Christ Jesus as his Lord and be found in him clothed in the righteousness of Christ that's his through faith. 
His goal and prize also was to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. His goal and prize was also to know Christ as he increasingly became like him in his death in order that he says he might attain to the resurrection of the dead on the last day. So his goal, and that goal obsessed him, was to know Christ and to experience all his fullness that he could now in preparation for actually seeing him face to face and experiencing total fullness. Well, if Christ is in fact our pearl of great price, and if knowing him really is surpassing great value, we're going to want to experience as much of him as we possibly can. We need to go hard after Christ. And if we're not, we need to question why. Is it because we don't value him? Do we not want to know anymore? We've had enough? We've learned it all already? The more you learn, the more you realize you're just scratching the surface. But at some point, we're tempted sometimes to give up and become complacent. Just to settle for the status quo, whatever that might be, not to be pushing God to find out what else might there be for me to do that would serve you and honor you. We need to be careful because in Revelation 3.16, remember what happens to lukewarm Christians. Jesus will spew them out of his mouth. But when you really go hard after Christ, when you zealously and single-mindedly pursue Christ to know him, the reward is you're going to be your deep joy as well as his honor at the same time. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, I plead with you for the sake of your own joy and for the honor and glory of God, be like Paul. Cultivate a holy discontentment with your past, both good and bad, and cultivate a holy zeal for more of Christ. Now, if you come in this morning and I said to you only, I have a message for you. And its message is concluded in just two words, press on. That'd be a chronicle of despair for a lot of you, wouldn't it? Because you had a lousy week. And the last thing in the world that you want is some old guy telling you, like a cheerleader, come on, keep going, push on, push on, you can do it. Let's go for it, church. And you're going, on the basis of what? <laughs> I mean, I feel miserable. My family relationships are a mess. i got an uncertain future. I might even lose my job because of some experimental vaccine. I haven't had a good week. <laughs> Pressing on is the last thing on my mind. I know that's true because I haven't had many particularly good weeks myself lately. And I haven't had a particularly striking 24 hours leading up to this hour either. So I don't need somebody to come alongside me and tell me to just press on. I need someone to come to me and remind me, you're called, you're kept, you're being pulled upward to Jesus, now press on. It's this calling from all eternity, and it's keeping us through all of time, that provides the basis for us, the encouragement for us to just run the next hundred yards in the direction of my forever home. In one of my favorite movies, dating myself once again here, is the 1981 movie, Chariots of Fire. It's the only reason why some people are familiar with a man named Eric Little, the flying Scotsman, who shocked the world at that point by refusing to run the 100-meter race in the 1924 Paris Olympics. 
a race he was favored to win by a wide margin. He withdrew because the qualifying heat was on a Sunday, and he believed that God didn't want him to run on the Lord's Day. Now, he went on to win a, a gold medal and break a world record in the 400 meters, the third event he ran that day, even though that was not his strongest event. Now, my, one of my favorite lines from the movie is when Eric's character says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. But Chariots of Fire ends with these brief words about Eric's life after the Olympics, which is said at the end of the movie, Eric Little, missionary, died in occupied China at the end of World War II. All of Scotland mourned. So after the Olympics and after his graduation, Eric returned as a missionary to China where he'd been born to missionary parents in 1902. Now when the Japanese horrible occupation of China started to make life dangerous, he sent his pregnant wife with her two daughters to Canada for safety. So it wasn't soon after that that the Japanese uh, army placed him in a horrible prison camp with all the other people they found. No running water, no working bathrooms, no, hardly any food, as you can see. So separated from his family, that's where he lived several years before he ended up dying at the age of 43, about three months before the camp was liberated. On the surface, it just seemed like a tragic waste. Why did God withhold from this really great man of faith a long life, I mean years of fruitful service, the companionship of his wife and, his, and the joy of raising his children? It just makes no sense. And so you read some of the testimonies of what happened in that prisoner of war camp. And one of the ones, my favorite, is from a Dr. David Mitchell, who was one of the children who was in that POW camp that survived. And this is his remembrance, part of his remembrance of Eric Little. He says, Eric organized sports and recreation for the children, and he helped many people through teaching and tutoring. He gave special care to the older people, the weak and the ill, to whom the conditions in camp were very trying. He was always involved in the Christian meetings that were a part of camp life. Despite the squalor of the open cesspools, rats, flies, and disease in the crowded camp, life took on a very normal routine, though without the faithful and cheerful support of Eric, many people would have never been able to manage. None of, us will, none of us will ever forget this man who was totally committed to putting God first, a man whose humble life combined muscular Christianity with radiant godliness. What was his secret? He unreservedly committed his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. That friendship meant everything to him. By the flickering light of a peanut oil lamp early each morning, he and a roommate in the men's cramped dormitory studied the Bible and talked with God for an hour every day. He knew the upward call. He knew that he was called to serve Christ, even though it meant suffering, it meant separation from his family, a daughter he never saw, and even his life. But he knew that his call was upward. And he put all his energy into putting Jesus first in worship and in humble service, in love, and in dedication to helping God's people who were suffering. All his life, and all of Paul's life, sounds just too good to be true. Actually, it's too good to be fiction. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, that you have called us once and for all in an upward direction. You've called us to surrender our interests to the interests of Jesus. Because you know that's the only place we'll experience true joy, 
true happiness, true fulfillment, is when we surrender our life to Jesus and to live that way. So, Father, help us to realize once again that you're not just telling us to just gird up your loins and push on. You are actually the one who is, you're the one who's pulling us. You're the one who, in, who actually enlivens us, who gives us life. You're the one who actually becomes the tractor beam for our life. The Father draws, draws ever closer to Jesus. Help us to see how we go about doing that. You can do that. Your Holy Spirit wants to do that. I ask, Father, you to make us cooperative. For we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as you can see, we're going to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, and you know, to, to run competitively, you have to have the proper diet. So in Christians, we're actually called to feed on Christ. And remember, Jesus claimed that he is the bread of life. And then his blood, that representing the, you know, the voluntary sacrifice of his life, covers our sins. So as these elements are distributed by two people who have yet to volunteer, but they will come up. Um, and the worship team plays, I would like you just to consider rededicating yourself, maybe with a renewed zeal, and responding to Christ's upward call in your life, in whatever form that might take, to move forward toward him as he draws nears to you. So let's consider that as we prepare for the Lord's Supper.